We're coming up to 9.30. That means the Bible class from St. Paul Lutheran Church becomes airborne right now on Kim at, at KFU on the Messenger of Good News. Good morning. morning. The Lord be with you. you. Welcome to our Bible study here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, uh, continuing our study of the book of Acts. My name is Jeff Clulla. I teach New Testament at Concordia Seminary and back after uh, a few weeks in Israel with a class uh, from Concordia Seminary, a a wonderful opportunity for our students and uh, my first time there, so the entire session today will be pictures of my trip to Israel. Uh, just, just kidding. Uh, we, uh, great experience, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, we have a few, th- I'll give you one picture here anyway, but uh, uh, well worth going. I mean, I've been teaching New Testament at the seminary for 18 years, and there's still something about just seeing the stuff and the layout and both what's there and what's not there in some ways uh, was, was very, very uh, interesting. Um, so thank you for uh, allowing me to go for a few weeks and uh, thank Dr. Oshwald for, uh, for covering so ably and better than, better than me. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the, the first, really you would say the first Christian sermon ever preached uh, the last few weeks, you've been through the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, uh, the response of uh, uh, the crowds to Peter and the disciples speaking in tongues, uh, Peter's explanation that this is fulfillment of the prophet uh, Joel, and now, uh, beginning of verse 22, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, begins Peter's uh, preaching. So uh, for opening, opening prayer, just uh, one stanza, brief stanza of hymn 830 uh, from our uh, Lutheran service book, Spread the Reign of God the Lord. Let's pray. Spread the reign of God the Lord, spoken, written, mighty word. Everywhere his creatures call to his heavenly banquet hall. Amen. So I will give you just one, one photo. Uh, um, uh, as you guys know, I, uh, one of my favorite people is uh, the Apostle Paul. So uh, one afternoon we were at Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it is absolutely gorgeous. And a little background, the first maybe five days we, all, we spent down in the southern part of Israel. Uh, kind of the Judah territory, Benjamin, uh, Dead Sea area, uh, Beersheba, where Abraham lived, and and frankly, it's it's desert. I mean, it's miserable. Uh, uh, yeah, you could see why they were wandering. I mean, there's, there's not much to do down there. You know? uh, uh, so you know, 105 degrees. You're in the desert for five days, and then we get to Caesarea Maritima. And it's 75, you got the beach, it's gorgeous, you know, it's like, we could have just come here first, and you know, but, but uh, this, this uh, picture is uh, actually a specific uh, room, uh, this is Herod's palace, uh, Herod the Great's palace that he built at Caesarea Maritima, and uh, amazing construction, it's a huge complex, I don't give you the whole picture. This is the Hippodrome in the background, the horse racing course in the background. 
but he's got this little peninsula, huge, right on the, right on the coast. Anyway, this room, uh, and we know the room because of the layout of the temple or of the uh, palace and how typical Roman villas were built. Uh, this room is called the uh, Acroeterion. It's the entrance room or the um, uh, audience hall. And this is where Paul uh, stood before Agrippa and Festus in Acts 25 and gave his defense of the gospel. It's actually Paul's longest sermon in the book of Acts, uh, and it happened right in that room. So I stood in about five or six places and had my picture taken just to make sure I stood in one of the places where Paul stood. And, uh, and we went through Acts 24, 25 uh, with, the, with the students there. Uh, just an amazing story uh, that we'll see later in the book of Acts. But, uh, uh, and I've got my, you know, Paul's writings there. You know, I had to, had to hold the New Testament just to, just to, to make it legit. So there's my picture from my vacation. Uh, and maybe we'll show some others later on. All right. But Acts, Acts chapter 2 is, uh, is where we'll pick up. And uh, 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 again, this sermon from Peter on this first uh, Pentecost celebration, this first Christian sermon. And a, a little bit of background. So the setting, again, is the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this 50 days after, uh, the, after the resurrection... And uh, the disciples are still there. Jesus had told them to wait for uh, the gift that he would send, the promised spirit that he would send. Uh, it happens. And, and the key thing to keep in mind as we go through this is, well, I, I kind of think of these two people or two groups of people. You have Peter, right? And we know a lot about Peter from the Gospels, and we've already met him in the book of Acts. But we also have the uh, crowds in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem who just a few weeks earlier had witnessed and even, as Peter points out, participated in uh, the events of Jesus' uh, suffering and death and, and then the resurrection. So it's a, it's a very uh, interesting and unique setting that this first sermon happens. So, so just a little bit of review, right, with these groups of people. Uh, you've got uh, Peter, we know most recently from uh, Luke 22, where in the courtyard he denies Jesus three times, right? Uh, in Luke 24, he's one of the disciples who runs to the tomb and peers inside, and it says that he marvels but doesn't yet really kind of seem to know what's going on. In Acts chapter 1, he does uh, step up. So after Jesus uh, appears to the disciples, you have the ascension. Uh, Peter then takes the lead in explaining how they need to select the, the 12th apostle to replace Judas. But again, uh, Peter is a pretty outspoken guy in the Gospels. Uh, he seems to get things right some of the time. He seems to get things wrong a lot of the time, right? And of the disciples, he's singled out as the one who intentionally uh, denies Jesus. At the very moment when Jesus is confessing that he is the Son of God, Peter is in the next room out in the courtyard uh, denying that he even knows him. 
So, you know, if you're going to pick somebody to be the, the first preacher, right, I mean, the other, you know, John might be pretty good or, you know, James does some stuff later on, you know, Peter, but it's Peter, right? Peter's the guy uh, who, who preaches a sermon. And, of course, uh, the people he's speaking to are this crowd in Jerusalem. And let's just take a quick flip back to Luke 23 to see how this unfolds in the first part of Luke's book in, in Luke, how uh, the crowds interact. So you've got these uh, various you know, trials, if you want to call them that. You got Pilate, you got Herod, you got the Sanhedrin, all these people trying to figure out, well, Pilate's trying to figure out how to avoid all this. You see in verse uh, uh, 15, Herod sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing deserving death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But then these, uh, these kind of famous or infamous words in verse 18, with one voice that cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to the, them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, for the third time. Notice you've got to do it three times to make sure that it's not a mistake, right? Three times confirms it. What crime has this man committed? I have found him guilty in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So these are the people in Jerusalem early on this Friday morning, right, before the crowds are gathering in Jerusalem uh, that are not only witnesses but participants in the events of Jesus' death. These are the people that Peter is talking to in Acts chapter 2. And his sermon is, is uh, uh, you might say, uh, painfully aware that these are the people, right? He singles out specifically uh, what these people had done just a few weeks before to Jesus. The key, though, is what Jesus did for these people, right? Here's these people who, who participate in these trials uh, who, in some sense, of course, is always God's plan, but in some sense are instruments of carrying out uh, the death of Jesus, yet these are the people who first hear the gospel, who first hear that Jesus rose, died and rose from the dead for them. Right? Uh, uh, the gospel is for all people, right? even for them, even for us. So this, this is the, the, the dynamic you got going on. All these events fresh in people's minds, and the very participants in the events are here for this, for this uh, uh, message. So a little, uh, before we jump in, a little background on these sermons and acts. We're going to find seven of these throughout the book of Acts that you could kind of call, you know, kind of sermons or extended speeches. Sermon is maybe not the best word, by the way, uh, because it's probably longer than 14 minutes, like Pastor Smith requires at St. Paul's, um, so he can get the parking lot cleared out. Uh, but more importantly, 
uh, he's not speaking to people who already believe in Jesus. Uh, it's not a sermon in the sense of, you know, law and gospel. There is law and gospel, but it's not your typical, you know, Christian sermon. This is evangelistic preaching. This is proclaiming the gospel to people who don't know what Jesus has done for them. Uh, to uh, inform them of the gospel for the very first time. And this happens, as I said, numerous times in the book of Acts. And these sermons, these apostolic preachings, always have the same content. Sometimes it shifts a little bit in the, in the structure, but there's always uh, the same content. You always have an announcement that God has brought his promised uh, age to fulfillment. That now the kingdom of God is here. And sometimes they use kingdom of God language. Sometimes, you know, kairos, the time is here language. But there's some uh, statement that now God has acted. Not he's going to act in the future like the prophets used to do. But now God has already acted in the person of Jesus. Right? Which means that now you have to respond. Right? This is not something that I'm just giving you to consider and think about later on. Now God has acted. Now is the time uh, to respond to this message. Second, as any good sermon would do, there is always a description of the ministry, death, resurrection, and vindication or ascension uh, of Jesus. And sometimes the sermons will focus on one more than the other. Uh, this one in Acts 2 actually has uh, a pretty strong emphasis on the ministry of Jesus, uh, his deeds and wonders, which uh, is not always highlighted as much. Uh, but, but the work of Jesus in particular is highlighted, which is pretty obvious, right? That's what brought in this new age. There's not, interestingly, much focus on the teachings of Jesus, uh, Sermon on the Mount isn't quoted, or, or parables are not quoted. It's really, here's what Jesus did for you. That's the, the content of the sermon. Uh, third, uh, and we see two of them here, uh, there are always citations from the Old Testament. Uh, even when Paul is in Athens speaking to Greeks who have no idea what the Old Testament is, <laughs> he still cites the Old Testament. Uh, it's related to this uh, age of fulfillment that God had foretold us and it would come. He said it was going to happen and now it's fulfilled. Uh, but, you know, of course, keep in mind that the Bible of the first Christians was the Old Testament. Uh, if you're going to preach a sermon, you're going to preach a sermon based on the Old Testament because you don't yet have a New Testament. So it makes pretty good sense. And, uh, and they, they uh, pull passages... Uh, walk through Old Testament passages that highlight this age of fulfillment and uh, the work of Jesus. And finally, uh, as any evangelistic sermon would do, there's a call to repentance. Right? Somehow, uh, those hearing have to respond to the message. Uh, just like we had in Jesus' preaching. Right? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe in the good news. First sermon, or first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, time is fulfilled. It's actually almost exactly what, what the outline of the sermons in Acts is. Time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the good news. Right? Uh, if you don't respond now, right, 
there's, there's work for the apostles to do. They're going to go on and on and on. And, and as we see throughout the book of Acts, Paul shows up in one place saying, Philippi, they don't respond. One person responds, he moves on, moves on, right? Uh, uh, now is the time uh, to repent. So it's very, very common uh, uh, themes uh, that show up in these, in these uh, sermons. What's, what's also interesting, though, is that while the content is very similar, the message is always ta- tailored to the audience. So it's not like they have a canned sermon, you know, that, that they pull out whenever they show up somewhere and preach the same thing, you know. Uh, Jerry Bodie over here has like 17 Reformation sermons in the next three months. Actually, one sermon he's going to preach 17 times, right? Right. That's, that's how it works. Uh, um, uh, that's not what the apostles did. Every time they spoke to somebody, they tailored the message to the people. Paul talks differently in Athens than he talks to, to Greeks, than he talks to Cornelius, uh, who's a, who's a, uh, a proselyte. Uh, then he talks to uh, Agrippa, who is a Roman official. Uh, then he talks here to the people in Jerusalem. All right. So this, this great cosmic message of God bringing this uh, age to fulfillment is for all people, but all people hear it in a way that is directed at them, that they can hear and receive and respond to this good news. Uh, uh, I think that's, there's something helpful about that. Uh, there's not some magic formula of the gospel that if you just repeat the right words, then poof, you know, everything's fine. But the apostles are constantly speaking in a way that is directed at the, the people right in front of them that day. Uh, so that they can hear the message, that they can hear the law and the gospel in terms that they can understand and that they can respond to. So that's why this sermon in Acts chapter 2 sounds pretty harsh, okay? Uh, um, There's a lot of law in this sermon. When Paul gets to Athens, there's not a lot of law, per se. When Paul talks with Agrippa in Acts 25, not a lot of law. A lot of description of the kingdom, but not a lot of direct law. So let me just kind of... run a few of these through. Let's take a look at, uh, I should have read this first. Let's take a look at uh, just 22 through 24 of Acts chapter 2. Men, Israelites, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man shown forth from God to you by mighty deeds and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This one, uh, that is Jesus, delivered by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God through the hands of lawless ones, you killed, having crucified him, whom God raised up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, that is, death. Uh, Notice how specific that is, right? Men Israelites. Earlier in Acts chapter 1, when they had to select the 12th apostle to replace uh, uh, Judas, he calls them men brothers. 
But here, they're not brothers yet. They're Israelites. They're people living in Jerusalem. So he addresses them that way. Uh, but again, Jesus was attested to you. Mighty deeds, signs, wonders. You saw these things with your own eyes, right? You yourselves know, he says, what Jesus did among you. Uh, verse 23, uh, he was delivered up to you. You took him. You killed him. Right? This is not some generic you. <laughs> this is the people in the city of Jerusalem that he's directly addressing. Uh, verse 29, he'll mention this. David's tomb is still in the city with us. Uh, uh, it's in Jerusalem that they are. He's referring to known sites in the city of Jerusalem. And verse 36, let the house of Israel know this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. So this is not some kind of sermon, you know, kind of floating over people's heads. Here's some interesting ideas for you to think about. This, this, is, this is as direct as it could possibly be, right? I mean, this would be like saying, uh, I'll, I'll pick on you, bud. Bud, you got a speeding ticket yesterday. And from the pulpit, we're going to talk about Bud's speeding ticket and how he needs to repent. So, I mean, you know, and it's that, right? It's that specific. Uh, people who just weeks before participated in these events, saw these events, are being spoken to in the most direct way possible. And that last line there, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Right. It's kind of a risky line on Peter's part. I mean, what, what might the reaction be? Right? Hang yeah. Who are you to tell us that we crucified the Son of God? Right? I mean, we killed him because of blasphemy. That was the whole point in the beginning. And Peter says, you know, I hate to tell you. Well, I love to tell you. He, God raised him from the dead. And it's your fault. You're the ones who are guilty. There's a lot of risk involved in that, right? When Stephen tried the same thing in Acts chapter 7, what did they do to him? They stoned him. They put him to death. Uh, but Peter, right, speaks a specific message to specific people, uh, puts himself at risk for the sake of the preaching of the gospel. And, well, as we see, it worked. <laughs> Uh, any, any kind of thoughts on that? The specificity of the sermon, the, the directness of, of the approach. I mean, how comfortable would you guys be if you were singled out <laughs> in the sermon? What's that? Yeah, 14 minute sermon. Yeah, thank, thank goodness it's short, right? Relatively short. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh... This is true confession. I, when I was a kid, I was sitting down in front of the pulpit one day with some friends of mine uh, and messing around, and the pastor stopped his sermon and looked right down at me and said, are you guys having fun? <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, uh, you know, direct accusation. Direct accusation from we the pulpit, yeah. Down into the <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, it's a different generation now. They, they might say, yeah, we are, actually, thanks, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever did that from the pulpit. But, 
Yes, sometimes it's necessary for particular sinners, right? But, yeah. 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 Uh, so, so again, uh, as, we, as we kind of take a look at this, you know, how do we, how do we move from the specificity of this sermon to the, to the general application? We'll get to that. But, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that this, is, this is, I mean, this is targeted. <laughs> there's, there's no doubt of the guilt of the people who are listening to this message. Yeah, Paul. I think sometimes it, it's easy to talk about we're sinners kind of in a generic way. Yeah. And we don't get specific enough, and that's not preaching law then yeah. either. Right. So, uh, you know, this is what it is, uh, what's yeah. got to do, right? Yeah. Use, use the word you. Yeah, you, right? It's not people's sin, yeah. you know, or generically we sin, but, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, it's in our confession and absolution. It's there, right? But, but um, uh, it's, it's a personal address. God's word addresses us personally, both in law and gospel, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I was uh, kind of curious about the meaning of that word, that phrase, attested to you by yeah. God. Yeah. What, what that really means when he tells these people that. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, apodignomai, uh, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's uh, shown forth, shown forth visibly, I guess would be the sense of it. Uh, you know, and, and the focus is by God, right? Signs uh, or great powers and signs and wonders. Uh, uh, I mean, Jesus was walking around, you know, healing lepers, uh, opening the eyes of blind people. Uh, you saw this stuff, right? Uh, so the, the actions of Jesus were a visible demonstration of his authority and power and who he was. And, I mean, the law part of this is you should have responded then, right? The response to those should have been, well, I got it in the next slide, right? Uh, like in Luke 7, when he raises the, uh, the dead son of the widow, Right? Dead man sat up, began to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And in the next verse, the report about him went throughout the countryside. Well, that's a good response, right? Uh, Jesus raises somebody from the dead. That's a pretty visible, you know, uh, 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 dynamise, a mighty deed, right? The response is, God has visited his people. The response should not have been crucify, crucify. Right? That, that's his point. You, you've seen all this stuff, uh, uh, yet you rejected and, and put him to death. Yeah. I mean, similarly in, uh, in Luke 11, where uh, in the Lucan uh, uh, episode where uh, Jesus is casting out demons and he's questioned by the religious authorities. And he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? The casting out of demons is visible evidence of the kingdom of God having come. Right? And again, what is the response when the kingdom of God shows up? It's repent. Right? Repent and believe. Yet the response of the people in Jerusalem was not repent, it was Rejection, right? Um, 
So this, it's a, uh, this phrase, actually, mighty deeds and wonders and signs, uh, uh, it, it is a, a fact that it's not emphasized a great deal through the book of Acts, or for that matter, in Paul's letters, uh, Jesus' miracles, his, his deeds. Um, uh, and I wonder, I don't know how you could prove this, but Paul doesn't talk about it a whole lot because he's talking to people in you know, Asia Minor or Greece, and they didn't see it, right? Well, here, here's people who actually saw this stuff, right? Uh, uh, you saw these things. You, you should have known better. You should have responded. And so they're highlighted here because these are the very people uh, that, that saw these things. And, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, demonstrated from God. I mean, it's, it's clear of the source of, uh, of who, who brought these about. And furthermore, in verse 23, he was delivered by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right, that this is all the work of God uh, to bring about this new age, uh, and and you blew it, right? You blew it. Is the problem? Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, it's, or I guess important to point out that he doesn't just say, "Look, Jesus did miracles, therefore believe in him." Right? He says Jesus did miracles by the power of God. Uh, uh, he was put to death by the plan of God, and he was raised from the dead by God. Uh, uh, the whole ball of wax is part of the preaching, right? It's not just focused on he did some cool stuff. Uh, it's he demonstrated the kingdom, he carried out the work of God, and he was raised to the right hand of the Father, and now is is Lord. So it's, it's an interesting uh, sort of highlighting of the miracles, although it's not a sort of sole point. It's not a standalone kind of point. It's part of the entire preaching that, um, that the kingdom of God has come. All right. So that's, that's how he's reintroducing Jesus to them, right? What do you want to know about Jesus? He doesn't bring up the, the cleansing of the temple. You know, he doesn't bring up uh, the, the teaching again. He brings up the deeds, the death, the resurrection, right? The, the work of Jesus is what he focuses on. Now, uh, what else does he focus on here? Uh, first, this uh, interesting note right at the beginning in verse 22. Uh, Israelites hear these words, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, we've seen this several times throughout the Gospels where Jesus is consistently called Jesus the Nazarene, the guy from Nazareth, right? Uh, in other words, it's a specific guy. It's a person, right? We know his mother. We know his brothers, you know, are the stories from the Gospels. Uh, at the resurrection, the, the angel at the tomb, you seek Jesus the Nazarene, right? One specific guy, an actual human being. Right? He's not some kind of figment or phantasm or ghost or something. He's Jesus the Nazarene, uh, identifying him specifically, partly because there's lots of Jesuses running around. It's a very common name, Yeshua, Joshua. It's a very common name uh, in the first century. But again, it's this, this focusing. So, uh, and again, it's not a 
It's not a, uh, a, a claim to fame to be from Nazareth, of course. You've got that line, Philip, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, we, uh, so I'll tell you one Israel story. We, uh, we didn't go into Nazareth because there's nothing there. It's a, uh, well, there's, there's nothing there in the first century either. It's kind of, there's a little hill and then a cleft in the hill. And Nazareth is kind of right in the cleft in the hill. And there's no uh, cropland or, you know, grazing land. It's just kind of scrub hill. Uh, the major city, uh, Sepphoris, is about three miles away. Uh, very large city. It, almost certainly Jesus and Joseph would have worked there as carpenters. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. But Nazareth was, was uh, I've got to be careful. It was, like, it was like being from Saskatchewan. I mean, it's, it, there's nothing there. It's a, it's a nothing. So when he calls him Jesus and Nazarene, it's not some kind of theological term. Uh, it's a statement of his humanity. He's a guy from Nazareth, from humble, uh, humble origins, uh, from Zebulun and Naphtali, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, where Nazareth was, uh, was located. So again, let's focus on the specificity. Um, uh, a couple other notes here. In verse 23, Jesus was delivered by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I, I, we don't want to skip over that too quickly. Right? Uh, as we saw in the Gospels, three times Jesus predicts his own suffering and death and resurrection. Um, the disciples at least somewhat picked up on this. As he got close to Jerusalem, they were a little terrified about the whole thing. Uh, but all this happened uh, by the plan and foreknowledge of God. So you got this interesting you know, dynamic where God wanted this to happen, but who are the human agents that caused it to happen? Well, it's the people standing in front of Peter. It's like, okay, you did this, but, well, God had to do it. You just happened to be the, the means by which it happened. Uh, that this was not some kind of a, uh, you know, you thought you were trying to fulfill your religious responsibilities or political gains or whatever it is. Uh, but as a matter of fact, this is all what God had in mind from the beginning. Right. So Romans 8 is a good example of this if you want to flip uh, Romans eight thirty two to thirty five, and it's actually a pretty similar content wise to what what Peter lays out and uh, the other apostles lay out in these sermons and acts. So a familiar passage: If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. And notice, he, God, gave him up for who? Everybody, right? It's a, it's a pretty large group, right? All-inclusive. Uh, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I mean, that's basically Peter's sermon right there, right? Uh, and then, of course, the, the result, therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. 
or the conquerors. So this, this uh, repeated emphasis that this was all according to God's working, uh, uh, who did not spare his own son. Uh, so it's, uh, again, these, these uh, uh, Jerusalemites are participants, but they're not the main actors, right? They're sort of uh, playing a script that they didn't know existed uh, and was handed to them. Uh, this is all by the work of God. Uh, and, and by this, he brings about forgiveness in life. So, uh, and we passage after passage on this. Uh, the lawless ones here in verse uh, 23, that's simply a reference to the Gentiles. So, uh, through the foreknowledge of God, through the hands of lawless ones, if you don't have the Torah... If you don't have the Old Testament law, then by definition you are lawless. You are a sinner. Uh, because from their perspective, doing the law equals not sinning. So if you're not doing the law or you don't have the law, then you're automatically uh, a lawless one. So lawless with respect to the Old Testament, not lawless with respect to the legal system, is this point. Okay. Uh, uh, so it's, you know, again, this, uh, he, God's plan was, you know, kind of surprisingly not only to die, but to die at the hands of those who don't even know his word, right? Don't even have any idea uh, of this plan at all, but are simply used by him uh, to accomplish his purposes. Uh, God raised him up. I mean, there's passage after passage where this is a, a theme again. And it's, it's always a very carefully worded phrase, actually, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, we often say Jesus rose from the dead, but the way the New Testament says it is like 90% of the time is actually God raised Jesus, or he was raised by God. Uh, it's not that Jesus is doing this sort of on his own, I don't know, power, but God raised him. God is the one who vindicated him, right? God was the one working miracles through him. God was the one who, by this plan and foreknowledge, sent Jesus. And God was the one uh, who raised him up, right? Now, the, the, the important point for the, for the Jerusalemites here is um, you didn't just act against Jesus. You acted against God, right? Uh, uh, you're not just messing around with this guy from Nazareth, this nobody, uh, who's a kind of a troublemaker and a little strange. Uh, you're actually acting against God himself. Right? Uh, uh, he's the one who was bringing all this about, and he was the one uh, that you have rejected. Uh, verse uh, 24. Four, then, nice little phrase here, loosing the pangs of death. The word there actually is uh, uh, birth pains of death. Um, pangs, I don't know, what does your translation have there? Pangs of death? Agony of death? Yeah, well, it's agony as in childbirth when you don't have any drugs in the first century, right? Um, so uh, this, this sort of notion of all creation is groaning is coming out here. But he, he loosed the pangs of death. So he released the pangs of death uh, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
And this is just 1 Corinthians 15 language, right? Uh, o, o death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Right? The sting of sin is the law. Uh, uh, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so, I mean, crunched right there in those, what, five, six lines is, is a pretty good summary of, uh, of Jesus' life and ministry and work. Right? He's a guy from Nazareth. He did lots of really cool things by the power of God. Uh, he got killed in Jerusalem by the will of God, but God raised him up and he won eternal life for all people. That's pretty much the gospel, right? Uh, lays it all out right there uh, pretty quickly. Uh, any, just any kind of questions or observations on those few verses? The way God works through Jesus here. All right, now the fun stuff. Now, um, now we get to see how Peter and the apostles work through the Old Testament. Okay. So uh, uh, how should they have known? You have the life and ministry of Jesus, and you also have the scriptures which testified to him that told you guys that all this stuff was going to happen. Okay. So it's a both and. And we saw this throughout the book of Acts, that they're constantly uh, going back to the Word, going back to the Old Testament, drawing upon that to see how God is unfolding uh, his work in the world, uh, both in the life of Jesus and now uh, in the church. So we're going to get two psalms by David. Uh, uh, pretty important guy. And let me just give you the, the three-minute uh, David speech on this. Um, uh, David, uh, uh, the first, you might say, real, I mean, you got Saul, David, Solomon, so 10th century B.C., uh, the guy who conquers uh, the city of Jabus, which becomes Jerusalem. Uh, I, well, we were there, okay. It's actually very small, uh, the city of David on, uh, uh, on the little mountain in, in Jerusalem. The ancient city is, uh, is about 70 yards wide and about 300 yards long. It's a very small little spot. Uh, and the only reason to be there is because there's one spring, and it's the, close, it's the only spring within you know, miles. So that's why there was a city there. It's not really worth anything otherwise. Um, but the key uh, is not David himself, but the promises that God made to David. Right? So just like God was working through Jesus... Uh, to bring about salvation, he was also working through David, right? And, and Jesus, as the son of David, is the fulfillment of those promises. So just take a quick flip back to 2 Samuel 7. Familiar passage. And this is where David, you know, has this big old palace, which they think they found, at least the foundation stones of, maybe. Uh, David's going to build this big old palace. And, and then, after he realizes that he has a big old palace and the ark, uh, God does not have a temple. 
It's like, oh, oops, maybe I should fix that, right? Uh, maybe I should thank God for all the stuff he's given me. Uh, so maybe a little bit of messed up priorities. Uh, but uh, uh, God says, no, actually, I don't need a temple from you. Uh, rather, what I need from you is to make a promise. <laughs> or I need to make a promise for you. So in verse, uh, verse 12, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. It's actually your own loins. Get that phrase because we're going to see it later on. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever, right? Longer than 40 years. I will be his father. He will be my son. Hmm. Interesting language, right? When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Right. So, and it's just the case, all the kings of Israel, of Judah, well, Israel and Judah, uh, always identified themselves as the house of David. House of David. Inscriptions, seals, they're always called house of David. That's the line, right? That's the line. Even when it starts getting desperate, and it looks like things are not going to work out. Um, I guess I didn't put a slide up there. Turn to Jeremiah 33. Now, Jeremiah 31 is the famous passage about the new covenant. Uh, I will put my law in their hearts. I will forgive their sins. I will remember their wickedness no more. We read that as the Old Testament reading on Reformation Sunday. Uh, uh, but uh, a couple of chapters later is where it's this reaffirmation of the promise to David. So Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18. Days are coming, declares the Lord, which is exactly how that Jeremiah 31 passage starts. Days are coming when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to offer to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Now, Jeremiah is speaking in very desperate days when the kingdom is being wiped out, right? Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, uh, and yet in the midst of that destruction, God reaffirms the promise that an ancestor of David will reign forever, right? He will stand forever. So David, David is a huge guy, right? And when Jesus was uh, entering in Jerusalem on the donkey, 
on Palm Sunday, what are they exclaiming? Right? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Right? Sort of right. Okay? So, so Peter picks up on this. Right? David says about him. So now we're in Psalm... Where are we? Psalm... 16. There we go. 15? 16. Is it 15? 16. Right? Yeah, it's the Septuagint in Greek. Right. Uh, so here's the psalm. And, and Peter, I mean, it's the same, same in uh, Acts 2. You can read it there. Peter uh, uh, pretty decisively says, well, the psalm is not actually about David. It's about Jesus. So the heading of the psalm, a miktam of David, which we're not sure what a miktam is, but it's probably some kind of a, a canticle or some kind of a chant. Um, but it's by David, right? So David says about him, Jesus, I saw the Lord before me always, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. For this reason my heart was made glad and my tongue rejoiced, Still will my flesh dwell in hope, for you did not abandon my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One to see decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with merriment, rejoicing, uh, with your face, or with your presence, is, is kind of the metaphor, um, with your presence. So, so here's how Peter walks through this. Right? He says, this is not actually about David. David was was the one writing the psalm, but it's not actually about David, and here's how you know why. And what's really interesting is there's not very often that we get the exegesis of the apostles. Sometimes they quote a passage, and you're kind of scratching your head, how did, how did they get from A to B? Here, helpfully, they tell us their exegesis. So it's a little mini exegetical study here in verses uh, 29 to 32. So, uh, 29. Uh, Men, brothers, it is possible to say with boldness to you about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is among us up to this day. So, notice his move. It says, uh, you did not abandon my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One to see decay. Peter says, ah, he died. We know where his tomb is. Uh, uh. We know that uh, uh, Herod actually entered into the tomb and felt guilty about it, so he built a nice uh, uh, edifice over it. We don't know where it is now, but, but he's dead, right? So this can't be about David. So verse 30, Therefore, because he was a prophet, and knowing that God swore by oath that one from the fruit of his loins would sit on his throne, seeing ahead of time, he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh see decay. So there's verse 27. This Jesus God raised, of which, and get this phrase now, we are all witnesses. Therefore, because he is exalted at the right hand of God and receiving the promised Holy Spirit from the Father, he poured this out, which you both see and hear. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting move by, uh, by Peter. 
They've got this psalm. It's about David. David is the, the one who would have a descendant reign forever. It obviously was not David. It wasn't any of the other kings. Uh, 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 in fact, you see throughout uh, the kings of the south, the kings of Judah, when they die, when you go through uh, Kings and Chronicles, he died and his bones were gathered to his fathers, right? Or his bones were buried with his father David, right? They all died, they all died, they all died until this guy, right? Finally, finally, someone did not have their soul abandoned to Hades and their body did not see decay, right? Uh, you also have language of uh, the Lord before me always. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. My heart was glad. My flesh will dwell in hope. Sarks is the word there. My body will dwell in hope. My flesh and bones will dwell in hope. Uh, your Holy One did not see decay. Uh, fill me with, with merriment. Same word there, by the way, with the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son when he comes back and they made merry. It's the same, the same word. All right. So where is uh, David's tomb? We don't know. Here's, it's probably what well, we do know from uh, the book of Ezra, um, sorry, book of Nehemiah, uh, that uh, when Nehemiah returned, his, his tomb was down over here by Siloam, down at the south end of the city. Pool of Siloam is down here. If you go to Jerusalem today, they'll tell you that the tomb of David is up about right here somewhere. Uh, if you've seen it, we walked past it and didn't go in because it looks like this, and it's not David. Uh, so this, is, this was built sometime during the Crusader period. They decided to build a tomb for David. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, he's not there. Uh, but interestingly, Peter is referring to this event uh, you know, Herod, just a few years earlier, rededicated a tomb to David somewhere. I don't know if it's this one or not, but, but uh, you know, Peter says, look, you know about David. He died. This can't be about him. It has to be about Jesus, the one whose flesh did not see decay. Do we see in this Jesus doing this exegesis in the time between his resurrection and ascension? Yeah, good. Um, well... Sure. I mean, he, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, right? And showed how all things pointed to him. Uh, how the Son of Man would die and after three days rise. And, you know, and it never actually says three days anywhere, but, but he, you know. So, yeah, the, the apostles are certainly um, uh, uh, hearing from Jesus how the scriptures were fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, you could see him, you know, feel him showing his hand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, again, we talked about this, right? So it had to be an incredible Bible study yeah. to, to walk through all this stuff and realize, oh, yeah, I've been reading that wrong for 35 years. Or, you, know, and, <laughs> you know, oh, that's what that really means. You know, I was always wondering about that. Um, but, but again, Peter's point is this is all by the foreknowledge of God. This is all destined to happen. And now it's happened right in front of you. Right in front of you, someone rose from the dead. Uh, and so now it's time to respond. All right. Well, I better break there. And uh, we'll do less lecture next week because I want to talk about what all this means for us. Uh, but um, uh, we'll, we'll stop there. So next week we'll pick up with uh, verse 20. Well, we'll redo a bit of 29 and keep going. Great. Thanks.
This has been the Lutheran Bible class from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere.